Father, thank you for such a wonderful set of songs the, the team put on for us today and caused us to focus and meditate on this God that is so wonderful that he'll capture everything about us for eternity. We'll sing forever of his love, Lord. Lord, that's just our human thinking right here. We, we actually have very little understanding of what life in eternity will be like. But we know we'll be enthralled. We'll know we'll stand in the perfection of our Savior, Lord. And we look forward to those days, especially as we look at our world now. We long for you to come. We long for the king of justice and righteousness and love. Put his feet back on this planet, Lord, and rule. But Father, you have us here to glorify you, to speak of your gospel, to share the gospel not only here but around the world, Lord. We have the message that changes lives. We have the message that changes destiny. And so, Lord, help us in this. Uh, cause us to be mindful of the lost. Thank you for the comfort we find in you. Thank you for truth that we find in you. Those things are so lost in the world, but we have them freely in Christ. Lord, encourage us tonight as we look at this passage of leadership and submission and some wonderful roles that can be applied to all of our lives, Lord. So open our minds and hearts to this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Exodus 18 is, is a very important passage in the life of the nation of Israel. Moses has been very busy, as we'll see in the text. He has been away from his wife and children. He has uh, been deep in the heart of uh, Egypt, striving to follow God and to help bring those people out by the strength of the Lord. And now he is closing in on the foot of Sinai where God has asked him to return to. He met him there and God told him what to go do. He went and, done, he went and did that. And now he's back with them or at least very close to that. There's two major events in Exodus 18. It's first we'll see is the return of Moses' wife and children. And he's accompanied, they are accompanied by um, Jethro, his father-in-law. Second, and, and most I think most important here and foremost in the text is this counsel that Jethro is going to give the leader of the nation of Israel. It's, it's not hard to understand. Jethro probably had a smaller ministry, smaller group of people. He's coming to tell people, tell a guy who's, who is ruling and reigning in a sense God's hand for a nation that exceeds two plus million people. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, as we'll see later on, we realize that the nation of Israel was at Sinai in that area for almost a year. And here is where the law was given and so forth. Now, they've just, they're just leaving, or it possibly they're still in the area of Rephidim. That's where God brought water out of the rock. We saw that last time, two weeks ago. And it seems they're close by, and, it, and and the more I study this and the more I've looked at that area and think through, they probably were close enough and God provided that water for them for possibly that year. And they were close enough to go back and forth and have the water they needed to survive on. The introduction of Jethro is important because it shows that Israel is striving to have a relationship with the nations around them. I think sometimes when we study the nation of Israel, they, it seems that they're so isolated from everyone. And it is true in a lot of ways. They, they desire to have relationships with other nations, but they won't conduct themselves like the rest of the nations. So they won't do what those other nations do, and so there becomes constant war in a lot of ways. Now, the relationship between Moses and his father-in-law is a precious, a precious truth. We'll learn a lot from that tonight. And it holds together these two nations um, and you, you'll remember that the Midianites, they are descendants of Abraham, particularly descendants of, anybody remember? Ishmael. Somebody, I think I heard somebody say Ishmael, yeah. So if Ishmael had 12 sons, what they called the 12 princes, um, and the Midianites were one of them. Within the Midianites, there were different groups within them, and particularly in uh, Jethro's group, in his area, he was with the, the uh, Canaanites, 
And, and we'll see, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, because they're going to stay with the nation of Israel, some of them, for quite some time. Now, the Midianites as a whole did not retain their worship of God. Uh, of course, Ishmael rejected the obedience of God. He had all these sons, they started these nations, and most of them warred against Israel. But the Midianites, when we think about them, because we look, at, we look at Jethro and we go, here's a man, he seems to be a godly man, he seems to fear God, he seems to give incredible counsel, but his people on a whole did not worship God. He's unique. And I believe God raised him up for this purpose. Now, in Judges 1.16, you see that Jethro was from the Kenites, a sub-tribe of these Midianites. And, and so here we realize the text that these Kenites here seem to stay with nation of Israel, at least a portion of them, in their view of God is not so corrupted like so many of them. They get corrupted. And, and so true, you know, you can, a lot, of, a lot of people start hanging around Christianity and then pretty soon they, they don't like everything the Bible says, so they take portions and then so forth. We still see that today. And that happened, of course, back in this day as well. Now, we know that later Israel falls into war with the Midianites. Did anybody think of one major war with the Midianites? Yes, um, that would be one. Um, also, Gideon. Remember, Gideon fought the Mennonites. Remember, the, you know, he got down to 300 guys and, you know, they broke the lamps and blew the horns and everybody killed each other. <laughs> you remember that. So, so this is, a, when you see this text, you go, wow, this is an amazing interaction between two nations that don't, clearly don't care for each other. They're going to have war for many years, but inside these nations are two godly men who are going to have a relationship, a really incredible relationship. And it teaches us that God can cross cultural, national, uh, ethnic. He can cross all those bounds and bring people together. And I, I love that. And I, I hope he continues to do that with our church. And that's when you hold to the true message of God's word. You hold to the gospel, the purity of God's word. You hold to the truth. He'll cross everything. He'll go right through all the division that the world has. So I love this relationship with Jethro and his Son Moses, is son in law Moses. Now, there's one great lesson in this passage that I think is the most important. It's Moses' humility. How many of you can imagine that you own a company that's a, you know, 500 fortune company and it's massive? I mean, he, he is dealing with a massive amount of people. I mean, when we say 2 million, that's, our, that's the bottom of the number. Doubtlessly, so much more. Doubtlessly, there's babies being born along the way. There's other nations that have joined them for coming out of Egypt and so forth. This is a massive group of people. And Moses is the head guy. And here comes pop-in-law. <laughs> Not of your group or your people. Beginning to give you counsel. What will Moses do? Will he humble himself? Will he listen to counsel? Oh, so many problems in our lives if we look back. And maybe even problems you're having today is because you rejected counsel. Some godly person loved you enough to share godly counsel with you, biblical counsel, and you rejected it. And, and the, the ramifications of that are just deadly, aren't they? I mean, the consequences come, and, and maybe eventually you repent of that, but you have these mounting consequences in your life that you, now you need grace to get through those. Because God gives us counsel. He sends people into our life to counsel us with God's word, and often we reject it. Just reading in my personal reading the kings of Israel, and the whole problem starts with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, particularly Jeroboam. He, he, instead of following in the ways of his father, he gathers the older men that counseled his dad, and they said, well, here's what you should do. And he goes, well, okay, that sounds good. Then he goes over to a bunch of young bucks, and don't take this personally, young bucks out here, but experiences this huge teacher. <laughs> And he says, what should I do? And then, of course, they give them the opposite. He gives them the opposite counsel of the wise men who tried to counsel him. And Jeroboam destroys Israel's relationship, the northern tribes, with God. Because he listened to bad counsel and he didn't humble himself. Even though he was king, even though he had the authority in those northern tribes, he would not humble himself. This is what's so beautiful about this passage. Here's a man with great power and authority who will humble himself and listen to counsel. And so it is a beautiful story and we learn so much from how Moses conducts himself. 
Let's look into this. Number one, the blessing of divine appointments and daily events. I, I love kind of this first section. Um, have you ever been apart from your loved ones, husband, wife, children, friends, or something like that? Reunions are very special, aren't they? You miss them. You long to see them. And that's what's basically happening here. Look at verse one with me. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, the Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel and his people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, first, you begin to see that Jethro has not been mentioned. We have not seen him since chapter 4, verse 18. Remember that Moses marries his, his daughter and he, you know, he has a little spat with some guys at the well and he runs them off and allows them to feed sheep and the girls come home and say, Dad, you know, can't believe what happened today. And, well, and then Dad goes, well, where is this guy? Why did, you, why did you bring him home? And of course they go back and get him, bring him home and next thing you know, there's a marriage. So we haven't heard from this guy for quite some time. And if you go back to those messages, I, I went in depth of what he was and what kind of priest he was. But what was interesting, and I started looking at this today, is is Jethro is only twice here and back in chapter two called the priest of Midian, only two times. He's called 13 times the father-in-law of Moses. So I, I like, I, when I study that way, I kind of look, okay, why is God using this so many times? So there's a special relationship that God wants us to see, that men can have relationship with other men in a godly way and can take counsel from others. And so I think that's special. Notice the word of, um, that he speaks here was uh, was effective. Um, the word the word is spread. Notice he says, "Look, the word we've heard. We've heard how things have happened here." Um, Jethro, the priest of Midian, the father of, of the father-in-law of Moses, heard of all that God had done. Word of mouth had been spreading. I, I think sometimes we look at the Bible and we go, "Well, you know, how did they get messages around? They didn't have Instagram. You know, there was no Facebook. People talk. People have not changed." Now, the story's probably got embellished, and that's why he's going to ask him, well, what really happened here? But he had heard. He had heard this had moved around to everyone. Hey, this God that Israel serves, he kills firstborn. <laughs> he kills cattle with hail. He turns water to blood. I mean, that got out. And so here Jethro says, we've heard about this. We've heard what God has done and he wants to come and see Moses. Look at verse two with me. And Jethro, the Mo- uh, Jethro Moses' father-in-law, there he goes and says it again, took Moses' wife, Zampora, after he had sent her away. Now, now we kind of have a flashback here um, in this verse. And the narrative doesn't tell us what took place. Um, it just says uh, here that Moses' wife, after he had, Moses had sent her away. So there's a lot of speculative, and you can read a lot of people on this. It's spirally, it's, it is so, solely speculative. But, but here's a couple of thoughts. Some say that um, she was sent back to Midian, back to, uh, to her father, Jethro, to tell what God had done. Moses wanted them to know, and, they, and after all that had happened, he sent her back. Now, I don't think she could have done that probably on her own um, in the long trip and then got back here by this time. So I don't think that was hold. The other one that people hold to, a lot of people hold to this, they think that, remember the little spat they had on the way to Egypt with about the circumcision of son number one? Do you remember that? And, uh, and, and we looked at the Hebrew in there and we realized that there was some tension there. And it was possible that Zipporah did not agree with circumcision. She was not raised in that. That was an Israel thing. She's a Midianite. And that might have been some tension there. So there's a whole lot of people who write on this and said, well, she got mad and she went home. That could happen. (laughs) Sometimes spats happen and people separate over things like that. But I don't think that's what happened. Here's what I think happened. I think Moses sent Zipporah home as the tension grew between him and Pharaoh. I think he was protecting his wife. And this is just totally speculative. This is my thinking. I think he sends her home. And he says, you go home and be with your dad. You'll be safe there. Right? We've done that as men, right? Things have happened. Maybe a hurricane comes. Hey, why don't you go up to North Carolina, stay with your folks. You know, we'll stay on here and get blown away. <laughs> you know, we do that, right? And you can see that. He sent, I think he sent her home. And I think Moses is protecting his wife. He's protecting his children like a husband should do. And, and God had promised them that he would return to Mount Sinai. And so... Remember, he's before, and he says, you will return back here with my people. So he knew that God was going to do what he was going to do. He was going to come back there. So I believe what he did, I said, you go back there, honey. Go back to dad. Jethro's going to take care of you. 
I'm going to finish this, and then we're coming back here. The whole nation's coming with me when I'll meet you back here. And so I think that's what's happening here um, that takes place. So most likely Moses knew that Jethro would accompany her. He knew he wouldn't let his daughter and son travel alone. In fact, they're probably not alone. They probably have servants with them as well. Look at verse 3 and 4. And her two sons, of whom they named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been sojourning in a foreign land. And the other name, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Well, here it's, this is a repeated name, Gershom. We know about that in chapter 2, verse 22. Clearly this was something that happened as he escaped, Israel, uh, escaped Egypt and he met Zipporah and they had a child and so forth. We've known a name. But this is the first time we hear about the second born son, Eliezer here. And he calls him my God and my help. So clearly this name means there's a dependency upon God. And possibly, it's hard, it's hard to know the timing on this because when he, and he's on the way to Egypt, he doesn't have a child. This is why I think she was with him for a little while. <laughs> and I think she went back, probably pregnant, back to her father and, um, and then the son is introduced to us. But I love the name. The name says, I learned to depend upon my God as my help. He could not do what God asked him to do alone in Egypt. And so often, we know in the Bible, they named their children these strong names to represent what they believed and what God had done for them. Look at verses five and six. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife uh, to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, I am come to you with your wife and her two, two sons with her. Now it's not clear if Jethro knew of all the difficulties and the hardships and trials that Moses doubtlessly went through in Egypt and all the details of moving this massive group of people out of Exodus and crossing Red Seas and so forth. But it is quite possibly um, that he was protecting the family and he knew also Zipporah had said, look, we're going to go meet Moses at this time and we'll hear that the nation is moving and so he brings her along. Now think about the size of this camp for a minute. I got thinking about this today as I was working on this. I thought, you know, I've been to some church family camps where there's several hundred people gathered and there's RVs and tents and, you know, they're spread out all over. You know, think about, let's just go two to three million people. Let's, what would that camp look like? <laughs> My goodness. I mean, you're talking miles stretched out and there's a constant flow of water coming in because you've got to go back and get water because not only for your family, but for your animals. There's, there's restroom issues. Does your mind ever think about that kind of stuff? <laughs> I mean, and food, and, and of course, manna's falling every night, and, and God's providing those things. But I mean, this is, a, this is a massive campground. And you can think about this. Here comes Jethro with his wife, and they come what seems to be to the edge of the camp, to the perimeter here, and, and, and there they send word. And you say, well, why do they come to the perimeter? Because doubtlessly Israel had already fought a war, right? Remember, we looked at this last week. They probably had guards out of sight this. You, you could be tacked on one side and not even know it, the camp was so big. And so here comes Jethro and wife and boys, and they send for Moses. And the family's coming together. And I, I just want to stop and take a moment. This was, you know, I think sometimes we don't look at the personal lives of people in the Bible. They're just like you and I. They, they love each other. They miss each other. Um, there's difficulties. They're struggling with sin issues. All of that's going on in Moses and Zipporah's family and their, their relationship. And here now they've been separated for nine months, a year maybe, up to a year now. Um, they've not seen each other. And, and father-in-law, father-in-law, what a great role parents play even with adult children at times when they go through hardships or something happens. They take them in and they care for them and then bring them back to their husband. I just think it's, I think it's a beautiful scene. And this Jethro guy, I want to meet him someday. He loves his daughter and he loves his son-in-law. He seems to love his grandchildren and here he is, this family coming together and there's, there's so many blessings in the daily life, isn't there? And when, when we say goodbye to each other, it made me think about this today, when we separate from each other, when we say goodbye, we should think about that. <laughs> How many people in this world have got a phone call and never got to talk to that person again that just casually walked out of the house, hey, I'll see you tonight. There, there's just daily blessings in life. 
husbands and wives residing together, raising children, doing life together. And meanwhile, yes, you have a busy job, and you're going to see how busy Moses was. Oh, my goodness. He's about as busy as anyone on the planet what God had him doing. And yet there's daily life going on. These boys missed a year, maybe, of their dad's life. So a lot of catching up had to happen. So don't miss the blessings in daily life. Number two, second thought, the blessings of family that rejoice over the providence of God. The blessings of family that rejoices over the providence of God. Now again, I love this section because it highlights this family that loves to talk about what God has done. Do we do that enough? (laughs) And they're gonna talk about hardships and difficulties too. They're talking about everything, but they're gonna come together and they're gonna talk about God. I think we have to work at that, families, because it's easy to get together and talk about things we like that are going on in the world and, or problems going on in the world. We get together and talk about COVID or you know, racial injustices or whatever that's going on, you know, whatever the hot topic is of the day. Sometimes those things consume us way too much. Do we come together and talk about how providential God is? And, and it's convicting, is it? When you think about this, look at verse seven with me. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and kissed him and they asked each other of their welfare and they went into the tent. Well, most likely Moses was probably near the center of the camp. He needed to be in a place, central place where people could get to him. He leaves that tent and he goes out and he meets his family. Notice we quickly see that Moses does not have an air of superiority about him. He's, He's really the representative of God, isn't he? For this nation. And notice he bows in, in probably a, somewhat of a standard Eastern greeting, but yet it's a way, it's a position of showing honor and respect to his father in law. He respects him. And notice his family, um, they're, they're quick to ask about each other's welfare. You see, I, I love studying this because it's just, that's what we would do, wouldn't You haven't seen Uncle Tom for a little while and he comes home and you, well, how's life going? How are things going? Boy, I heard that. Boy, you guys had quite a deal in Egypt. <laughs> you, you ask, right? And so I love the familiarity about this. But I, but I love what they do next. Notice that after they greet one another, they move into the tent. And some people might say, well, uh, boy, why didn't he greet his wife? I've had people ask me about stuff like this. Well, the narrative is focusing on the relationship between uh, uh, um, Jethro and, and Moses, right? That's, it's going to talk about his counsel and what Moses needs at the time. So the narrative is there, but don't, don't miss it. Just because a narrative doesn't tell us everything that happened in the Bible, I am sure, I am sure he was glad to see his wife. Now look at verse eight with me. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardships that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Can you imagine this Bible lesson that took place? This little Old Testament survey class that was fairly new. I mean, it is fascinating to think about this. Notice the terminology. He told them all that the Lord had done. Doubtlessly, Jethro said, is it true that that all the water got turned to blood? And, and yeah, that's, you know, let me tell you about that. What did that do? Well, it killed the fit. And man, they're going over all of this stuff. And Jethro's going, I, I heard that. And, and there's, this, there's this reminiscing going on. And I'm sure Zabor is involved in this. And maybe the children are there. And they're talking about the providence of God. They're talking about the providence of God. Notice the word he told him. It, it, in the Hebrew, it means that he recounted it. He proclaimed the, the, the account that happened. This is what God did. This is what God does. When you find people who pray a lot and trust God, when you get together with them, they'll say, hey, I want to tell you what God has done. Some of the brothers and sisters in here do this all the time to me. And I love it. I go, okay, let's sit down, let's talk. Because I want to hear what God has done. I love catching up with our missionaries. You know, get on the phone with them, I'll go visit them. Hey, let me tell you what God has done. See, we... Learn to love. What a blessing to love the providence of God and to share this. Now, this was God's plan that he wanted all the world to know his mighty deeds. Now, I want you to think about this. Moses is, in in fact, telling one nation to another nation what God has done. Right? 
here's a leader of the Mennonite nations, the Midians, and here's the leader of the nation of Israel. One nation is telling another nation of what God has done. That's what the Bible says to do. That we're to tell all the nations of the glory of God. It's happening actually in this tent. And, and of course, Jethro's going to go back home. We'll see at the end of the text. He departs, he lived. And guess what he does? He goes back and tells this pagan group of Midianites that he is a priest in, in what the God of Israel did for Israel. And that's exactly what God said he was going to do with the plagues. That all the world would know that he was God. And everyone would know who he was when he was done. So what an amazing thing. This assures that the true message of God's power is being related to others. That's what's happening in this tent. But they're worshiping. They're talking about the greatness of God. And notice also in the verse that Moses did not gloss over the hardships or the difficulties. And, and I think sometimes in the Christian world we talk about, oh, God's this. And I, I know in some, of, some churches you ought to be totally positive the whole time, right? <laughs> if you come and say, you know, I'm having some struggles, you know, whoo, we have a room for you. <laughs> no, no. The providence of God comes with our troubles, doesn't it? He's in the calamity, isn't he? He's in all of those difficulties. And I think it's interesting that he would bring this out because he had to say, man, we were pinned up against the Red Sea. The, the chariots, we could hear the hoofs, we could hear them coming. People were panicking. They were crying out for, for me to save them. And I'm God, what do we do? And God says, what are you doing? Stretch your staff out. You know, he's re-accounting he's re, he's re, uh, these, these stories. And, and maybe Jethro says, man, were you scared? And he says, you're right, I was scared to death. What if that sea didn't part? What would they have done to me? You know, they've already asked for my stoning several times. <laughs> So I think that's, I think that's important. And, and, and moms and dads and grandparents, you have to talk about hard times with your family. There are hard times. We live in a sinful world. It's fallen. Things are going crazy out there. They have no God. They're, they're chasing their own humanistic religion of themselves out there. You have to talk about difficult times. That's why we read classics and we, we read church history. A lot of our forefathers within Christodom died for the sake of Christ. We need to read those. And I, and I think that's important here. But overall, Moses is telling Jethro about Yahweh, the Lord, what he's done, his power. Look at verse 9 with me. Jethro rejoices over all the goodness of which God, which the Lord, had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So here's Jethro's response. He's from this fallen tribe of the loins of Abraham, um, Ishmael's rejection of a, of, of a God kind of started trickling down and here's these now 12 princes that have nations and here's a nation that is not worshiping God. This one though, this, this priest within this, this father-in-law looks at and hears what, J, what Joseph Moses is talking about and he says, this is worth rejoicing about. He's, he's rejoicing. Notice he rejoices over all the goodness which the Lord had done. Uh, I, you know, it's no secret, I'm a grandfather now. And I'll tell you, those little guys just capture your heart. And every time, every day we get pictures, and he's smiling today, you know, no, you just, you know, you just look at the goodness of what's going on, and you're so thrilled when, you're, when your children walk with the Lord, and you see, and you know they're going to have struggles, you know what's coming, you've been there. Um, but you rejoice at the goodness I think it's one of the blessings of grandparents. We don't need to be grumpy people. We need to be excited. The kids are going through the hard stuff. <laughs> grandparents come along and say, isn't God good? And they're going, yeah, Dad, I think, but I'm trying to pay bills, and <laughs> he's colicky, and, and he cried all night. God's good. God's good. He's got control of this. We're praying for you. I just, I just like Jethro. <laughs> he think he's cool. Um, and he rejoices over the goodness of the Lord and he sees God delivering them. Look at verse 10. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. It's almost like he just turns to prayer here and he begins praising the Lord. That should be our response, right? That's what godly people do. 
They praise the Lord with true sincerity, rejoicing over. See, this is a mark of faith. There's a lot of questions when you read this. Was he in the faith as he read this, as, as you read this? And, and this is a mark of somebody in faith. In fact, the psalmist says this in Psalms 145.7, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundance goodness and will shout joyfully your righteousness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your goodness. That's the mark of a believer. You're a good God. You're a good God. And we utter those words, don't we? And clearly Jethro was a unique man in the midst of a pagan nation. Look at verse 11 with me. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they, de- when they dealt proudly against the people. Notice this word, I know. It's an interesting word. It, it's a comparison. There's terms in, in the languages, the original languages, but it's a comparison term. He, it's compared against the gods of the, de- the deities of Egypt, the gods of Egypt. Now I know there is no other god. And, and people say, well, maybe this is where Jethro got saved. And, and, and maybe that's true. Maybe it's the beginning of faith, or maybe it's the advancement of a deeper understanding. But you've got to realize how pagan the world is at this time. Everybody has gods. There's no atheist in the world. Everybody has gods, and, and, and every nation had them, and the Midianites had them, and so forth. And, and so here he says, there's no question in my mind. I know, I, I, I put my faith in this, that this God can deliver. He is greater than the gods of the world. And again, I, I can't tell you for sure what was going on in his life, but in either event, it was appropriate response that he gave. And maybe, maybe, I thought about this today, maybe Moses, as we'll see in the text just in a minute here, he's worn out and tired, and this older gentleman comes along and refreshes him with a great attitude. You know, maybe that's our job sometimes, just to come and praise God. Somebody's going through some difficulties, and you just take time to think about the goodness of God. Man, that's uplifting. Life is always, it's always difficult. <laughs> Life's always going to be problems till we die and go to be with our Lord. Um, and maybe that word of encouragement uh, is what people need. Look with me in verse 12. Then Jethro, the father, the Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrificed for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law Moses, father before God. I think in response to what he heard, what God had done to this one and true living God, Jethro leads Moses and these leaders of Israel in this act of worship. And this act of worship is an, an, an acceptance to the sovereignty of God. We, we believe, we, we see your providence, we see what you've done. As a family, as a people, we're going to say, thank you, Lord. And, and this is not a priestly sacrifice. The Levites weren't established yet in in until they get to the Sinai and the law and all of that comes. But it's, I think it's just basically, here's the head of the home. We see Job do this in the book of Job. This is the head of the home taking moments, and he would have been the head of the home. He was, he was the older statement of the home when said, let's just stop and let's worship God. That's what that sacrifice was. And, and I'm sure, doubtlessly, they offered the best parts to God, and then they feasted on the rest of it, it looks like, in the passage. Third thought. The blessing of godly counsel in a teachable heart. The blessings of godly counsel in a teachable heart. Well, Moses had delegated before. We've seen that recently, right? He said, Joshua, the Amalekites are going to wipe us out. (laughs) We got to go fight them. Get men. So we've seen Moses delegate. He got Joshua. He knew Joshua. Somehow he discovered Joshua was a warrior and he could lead men and so forth. And so he's delegated it before. This is not new. But when it came to the oversight of the nation, particularly the spiritual oversight of the nation and judgment of the nation and all those things, Moses was carrying an impossible load. An impossible load. Now look with me at verse 13. It came about the next day that Moses, after this great day of worship with the family, guess what happens? Real life starts happening, doesn't it? And it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. From morning to evening. Now, this verse describes the severity of Moses' job. And even, look, even with family in town, 
there's no break. The load is so heavy, there's no break. There's no half days. It's morning to evening. The only thing that probably stopped this was darkness. And so the visual is clear. There's hundreds, if not thousands of people standing around in a log log jam of justice. (laughs) There's problems, right? You live in a camp with two million people plus people, guess what? Hey, (laughs) where'd my broom go? (laughs) You know, I didn't see your broom. You know, I mean, there's problems, right? Get people together, jealousy, all kind, you name it, immorality, everything was, that you know that happens to men and man and woman were happening in this. And so he's judging all of this. And the procedure would have been exhausting for Moses himself. The cases were endless, just one after another, and the only thing that stops is it got dark and people had to go home. And here he is in the middle of that. Look at verse 14. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, he asked two questions. What is this thing that you are doing for the people and why do you do it alone? Sit as judge and all the people and stand about you from morning to evening. So Jethro, he recognizes immediately his wisdom. He's an older man. He understands. He understands and he presumes that and and presumably confronts Moses here. He says, Moses, and and I imagine at the end of the day, because he probably couldn't get to him, at the end of the day, he's waiting there and going, are you kidding me? Moses, what are you doing to yourself? And doubtlessly, Jethro sees the value of Moses' leadership. He sees how how God has given him favor, the wisdom that he has, and, and how he's a spokesman for God in that relationship. But he recognizes that this is an unsustainable ministry. You're gonna die. You will not get through this. And notice the list of questions given by Jethro in order to stimulate Moses to think about the situation. Because sometimes when you're overwork, you don't think. You just move into one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And I, I, this gets a little close to home sometimes. And somebody finally comes up and says, what are you doing? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I, I got to do this and then I got to do this and I got to do that. And so look what he asks. He says, why? I mean, first he says, what? What is this thing you're doing? This is inhumane. This is not of God. What what are you doing? And then he says, why? (laughs) Why are you doing this alone? What, what, What on God's green earth are you trying to handle these millions of people by yourself? Jethro asks him very difficult questions, doesn't he? Moses, verse 15 and 16, says to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, it comes to me. And I judge between man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses, he's the covenant mediator, right? He's the guy between God and the people. He's the type of Christ, isn't he, in a lot of ways. And he's not Christ. But he's carrying a tremendous burden, and the people have accepted him in this role. And again, later, the biblical priesthood is going to establish where the Levite tribe handles a lot of this, but that's not happened yet. And by this time, Moses is making inquiries for God. He's settling disputes. He's arbitrating between individuals. The word dispute is a legal term in the Hebrew. So there's legal cases he's trying to solve. And without God's law officially given, it's Moses alone going, that's right or that's wrong. That's right, that's wrong all day long. And imagine he probably had some people who were not happy with him. They were probably the ones who wanted to stone him. <laughs> now you say, well, what happened to all the tribal leaders, what they call the elders? Well, they certainly handled um, boundaries and different things probably within their tribes, but they did not know the relationship to God, the law of God. And though the law of God was not written, the Bible says over and over that Moses handled the law of God. Before he was even getting, he knew the law of God because it was written on the hearts of men. And so there was a law unto itself, and he knew this. Look at verse 17 and 18. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. (laughs) It's just straightforward, good counsel, isn't it? Jethro, he looks at this situation and goes, this is unsustainable. He he fears for this son-in-law of his. You will burn out, is actually new words we would say here, right? You'll burn out. Notice he connects, this is not good, all the way back to verse 14, that you're alone in this. That you're alone in this. 
This is not good. Look at verse 19 with me. Now listen to me, son. I put the word son in there. <laughs> I will give you counsel. And God be with you. You be, uh, you be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. So Jethro points Moses to the way in which he should change his action, right? He says, notice, notice Jethro did this in a way that was seeking the divine blessing of God. He goes, you, you take this to God, you, you bring this to God, you be before God in this, but I'm going to give you some counsel here. You, you're going to be the representative. Literally, there's not a word for, in the Hebrew for representative, it's a, it's a combination of some words. It means this, it means be before the people in front of God. Be before the people, but be before God. So you have to be this. So Jethro's given advice to Moses in three categories. Notice in verse 20, he starts. He says, first, you teach them. You teach them the statutes and the laws. Now, what happens when people start to know the rules? <laughs> right? Well, then they can abide by them. But remember, there's no written law yet. There's no tablets. There's nothing of that yet. And, and so Jethro says, look, you've got to start with instruction." In fact, the word to teach has the idea of warning. So he, he here recognizes that you not only have to teach them, but you need to warn them. There's a sense of warning that's coming with his instruction. And in other words, I would say this, Moses, Jethro was saying this, Moses, you know God. You know his word. You've spoken with him. So teach them and warn them of who God is and how he deals with these things. They're having problems because they have no fear of God. Right? When you and I know God and who he is, we go, oh yeah, I know who God is. I know what he did for me. He sent a son and died for me. The gospel stops us from sinning. Here, it was a knowledge of who God was. So first of all, I think this is great instruction. Teach them. Teach them. Look, if you come to counseling with any of us, one of the things we're gonna really work on is your knowing, you knowing God better. Because we can give you 100 pages of homework and all kinds of stuff, and if you don't know God, you have no motivation to stop what you're doing. No motivation to correct your marriage and difficulties. You must know God. That's why, that's why we're strong in discipleship here and DTPs and partners and, and growing in Christ classes and those type of things because we know the answer to, to problems that people have is to know this glorious God. So Jethro says, you teach them to know God. Now notice, secondly, he says this in verse 20 and make known to them the way in which they are to walk in the work that they are to do. So Moses, you've just been going right, wrong, separate, go, you're, you're wrong, you're right. No, 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 teach them and then show them how to walk. What amazing biblical principles. Teach them, show them. Show them how to walk with God. And so he's, he's helping Moses. And here Moses is a brilliant man who, who God's used in incredible ways. And his father-in-law has given him tremendous counsel him. Show them. Not only teach them and warn them, but teach them the path of conduct that glorifies God. What his word has to say. You know, the Bible is just like that in the New Testament. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, there it says that Christ died and died for all and because he died for all that we might no longer live for ourselves but live for him. One of the greatest counseling verses there is. I no longer live for myself, I live for him. So how does that affect my relationship, my, my spouse, my children, my job, my finances and so forth? How am I living for the Lord? And that's exactly what Jethro is saying. You need to teach them and show them how to live for God. I don't think Jethro knew God was about to give Moses the entire law shortly after this. But it is amazing that his counsel comes just before the giving of law. And so Moses now, after this, is gonna spend 40 days up on Sinai and he's gonna receive the law of God and it's gonna have not only 10 commandments but all the other sundry laws and ceremonial laws and, the, and blueprints for temples and all of that stuff and he's gonna come down and what he's supposed to do for the rest of his life now is teach them and lead them. And here's Jethro telling them this before he even has the law. Notice in, in verse 21, um, he says, Furthermore, you are to select out of, the, out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over the leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Now the third point of advice was, he says to Moses, select men. There's a selection of capable men to work with Moses. 
He says, man, you know, the old ancient Chinese proverb is, you know, many hands make like work. <laughs> right? It is true. It's a great proverb. It's, I don't think it's in the Bible, but I think it's true, right? You know, my neighbor Rick says, all right, Rick, can you come help me carry this? You know, he comes over and we, together we get this. We do that all the time. Because I can't do it alone, so I need somebody else to help me carry it. And so it's, it's, it's a great truth. But here it's not just anybody. He tells him to select these certain men. And notice he has three things that he points out to. Qualifications, if it may be, like we have in the New Testament a little bit. First, they're to be God-fearing men. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, right? So, in other words, what he's saying, they have to be worshipers of God. Do not put somebody in authority over my people who, don't, who doesn't worship me. I think that's a pretty good idea. I think that our elders should be men who worship God, who fear him and honor him and want to live for him and there's a consistency in their lives. I think that should be true. And, and so he says, first, get men who fear God. And maybe he's speaking from this because he's come from this Midianite tribe and he's seen that so many of the Midianites did not fear the God of Israel. They started to worship other gods and they had, they had other sacrifice systems that were going and they were, he knew that they didn't fear the living God and there was always problems from that. And so first of all, he says, fear God. And these men would fear God and then if you fear God, you reject evil. Such an important thing, right? And then he says, men of truth. What a great point. This points out the knowledge of truth that it, that it would take to make judgment. And it's not, it's, it's, when you start studying this, you think of the church and then you think of our nation. You just can't help it. One, I think of the church first. Oh God, raise men up who fear you, who worship you, who honor you. Men who are sold out on the truth of God's word. Because if those first two things don't happen, we're gonna have all kinds of problems. You're gonna have men who are chasing their own dreams, who want their own things, who want power and authority because they don't fear God. You have men who don't have a basis of understanding the word of God. They're gonna start writing their own word and live by that. And of course, we see the nation fall into this sin later on. It is possible that Moses, since he arrived in Egypt, maybe he, I think promptly, Moses was preaching a lot through all the plagues. I know it's just a narrative and we see one plague after another, but doubtless he had to be telling people what God, who God was. And maybe there was men like Aaron and Joshua who were listening and other men and they were growing into this truth and God was supplying these men to help be judges and leaders. But the third thought, he says, is those who hate dishonest gain. Wow, isn't that important for a judge? <laughs> a judge who takes bribery? Ooh. And, and don't take a money. Think about our own nation and some of this stuff, right? The, the perception is dishonest, right? Can't make decisions because of perception, not truth. That's exactly what we're dealing with now. And so God says, do not put these men over my men if, if they're more concerned about perception and their own identity than they are about truth and fear of me. And dishonest gain to have people like them this is exactly what Israel fell in. Remember Samuel's sons took bribes? The New Testament tells the elders not to do this for sordid gain. They were not to use their position to gain something. See, it's not hard to connect the New Testament here to some of these, right? But in the New Testament, we come to the point that Christ is the head of the church and us elders are these um, under-galley rowers, these under-shepherds who work for the chief shepherd and we must give an account. And so that makes this even more glorious when you start to study this and, and more challenging at times. But notice with me the practicality. If you look at verse 20 into 21, he says, and you shall place them as leaders over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Break them down. Get them into smaller groups. <laughs> People go, why are you doing community groups and BFGs and all of that? Because I can't be in all your lives from here. I mean, I can preach God's word and, and that's what we do. I think that's one of the greatest things we do is we study God's word, but we, we have to have relationships. We have to have accountability, right? That's good for us. And I think a lot of people come to church and they you know, slip into the 10.30 hour and, you know, boom, boom, then no relationships. And we're trying to find those people and Bobby's got all kinds of teams. Hey, there's this guy slipping in. Let's go say hi to him. Let's try to get them and get, because it's so easy. I, I, just, I just need to get my box checked. <laughs> that I was at church. God wants relationships. And so here he says, break them down. 
get them into smaller groups so you can shepherd them, you can care for them. And that's what we try to do. We have a saying that we've been kind of encouraging our staff to start using. We're a small church with a lot of people. A small church with a lot of people. I'm really going after that. We're a small church with a lot of people. That means we have many men and women who are serving in unique ways and caring for people where people are not lost through the cracks in this church. But there's relationships being built. Always a challenge. Look at verse 22. I've got to hurry. Let them judge the people at all times and let them uh, be that every major dispute they will bring to you. But every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you. So they, they will bear the burden with you. What loving counsel. Where is this guy? I mean, you just you love this because he's thinking of Moses. He cares for his well-being, his health. And, and, and it's, it, he's referring to these masses of people and these disputes going. And it's almost like design these lower courts and, and you be the upper courts. And, um, but it's not secular, right? It's all built around God's promises and what God's word says. And, and, you know, till the death of Jesus Christ, the Jewish court, of course the Hebrews went on to be Jewish people, right? The Jewish court was known as the most legal, righteous, and just court in all of the world until the death of Christ. They broke every rule of their own to put him to death. We're gonna see that just in a few weeks as we get to his crucifixion and his trial. It is amazing they threw out everything they were ever taught in the Old Testament to crucify Christ. But God was creating this fair court system based on the law of God. Last thought, we'll close with this. The blessing of heeding wise biblical counsel. Look at verse 23, I love this verse. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all these people will go, uh, will go to their place in peace. Jethro, he has confidence, and, and with great confidence, he gives Moses this advice, but he still acknowledges, notice this in the verse, that he acknowledges that Moses is to place this advice in front of God. Did you see that? He said, so do this thing, and if God so commands you, Jethro was smart enough to go, hey, I think this is biblical and wise. I think this is what God would have you do, but you go check it out with him, right? Uh, Man, what a godly man this guy is. And clearly Jethro is not claiming that he has direct inspiration from God, so he says, look, you check this out. You put this in front of God. Moses needs to endure. Notice he says, if you do these, you'll endure. Uh, it, Jethro was uh, doubtlessly a wise man and had probably people under his leadership. He knew what it took to survive and not just survive leadership, but thrive in leadership. And so he teaches to delegate here. He teaches very godly principles here. He wants him, I love this. He, Moses, I want you to endure. I've had a few men in my life come up to me and say, Scott, we're a little worried about you. We want you to keep being able to go. And I appreciate that because they care about you and they see at times you've pushed too hard. Has anybody ever done that with you? Men, maybe your wife has said, sweetie, you're, you're not home as early as you used to be. Kids miss you. I miss you. You know, we come home and we seem to be in different parts of the house. You know, that's, this is important stuff, right? He, you, you get burned out and then you come home. I mean, there's times where I've gotten so tired of ministry, I'm just kind of a bowl of jelly, you know? You're just kind of like, I can't think anymore. And somebody comes along, particularly your wife, and says, hey, I love you. I need you around here. And you begin to rethink about how you handle things. Look at the last set of verses here, verse 24. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people and leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. They judged the people at all times. The difficult disputes they would bring to Moses, but the minor disputes they themselves would judge. And then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell and he went his way into his own land. I think this is just a tremendous mark of a true leader. He recognized this solid counsel. He humbles himself under counsel. It was probably hard. When someone tells you that, hey, you're doing too much, you're doing, it's hard. You go, well, you just told me to stop, but you didn't tell me how. <laughs> or even when they tell you how, you can't hear it because you're so buried, right? The stack's this high, and you're going, yeah, I need to take more time off. So the stack will be this high? It's hard sometimes. 
But you have to see that God sends people into your life. He, they love you and God sent them there to admonish you in a certain area in your life. And when you don't take admonishment from a, from a godly person who comes humbly and, and with God's word, I promise you're gonna get yourself in some problems. And, and, and I love Moses. He, he's such a good, a, a good example for us. Yes, he overworks himself like many of us do, but when the good counsel comes, when biblical counsel comes, he heeds this. And, and I think men, sometimes we may fall into this a little more. Some of you ladies can come talk to me and say, no, we, we struggle with this as well. But I think, first of all, are we the type of men or women who will let people into our lives like this? Just in closing, I want you to think of it. Am I a type of person where somebody can come to me and say, brother, I love you, or sister, I love you. Um, I see this issue in your life. How will we respond to that? Do you love the Lord to realize that providentially he sent this person to say, hey, there's a problem here. Do we allow ourselves to be put under biblical counsel? Well, counseling's for those who are really in trouble. Look, we counsel ourselves every time we read the Bible. We counsel from the pulpit. We're always in counsel. We're always giving counsel. It's part of our life as a Christian. And yet there's times where you and I need to sit under godly counsel and listen to it. Here's one quick story. I remember as a young man, I had a lot of pride, and my mentor, Jerry Boyle, who a lot of you met this last year and a half ago, um, he was admonishing me <laughs> for something prideful, I must have said. This is, I was in my early 20s, maybe mid-20s. And I remember looking at him, I think I might have told the story, I remember looking at him, and he was admonishing me very, very sternly, but very lovingly, as Jerry would do that. And I remember thinking in my mind for the first time in my life, because I had not been able to handle heavy-handed men, my dad was much that way, but Jerry was different, and he was admonished me, and I remember saying, this man loves me, he has proven his love to me over and over, so Scott, do not be an idiot and not listen to his counsel, so stop what you're thinking going, and all your disputes that are working through your mind that you're ready to argue with him about, let that go and listen to him. He loves you, and he loves the Lord. Man, that was a turning point in my life. When I finally just said, listen to him. Will you do that? See, this is what God does. He puts people in our lives to help us when we're getting to the point where we're not going to endure anymore. And that might be your marriage. That might be parenting. That might be your business. That might be a lot of things that you may not be enduring anymore. Oh, put yourself in counsel. Proverbs 15, 33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And behold, honor comes before humility. And so we, we have to humble ourselves in order to do this. 27, Jethro returns. He gave this great counsel and he went back to what God had him to do. So this chapter just gives vital counseling regarding to the selection of, of those who are gonna oversee God's work. It's important to delegate to, to let people do stuff. I tell our staff all this time, work yourself out of a job, there's so much to do. Find somebody to share the ministry with. If you're doing it alone and you die or something happens to you, well, how is the ministry gonna continue? Find somebody that you can mentor and, turn that, and be able to turn that over. We can do a million other things God has for us. And so I find this very practical. I hope you do too. I hope you think about that. Who's in your life? Who's giving you counsel right now? Who's overseeing you and caring for you? Have you submitted to somebody? May God bless that effort. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, this is such a good reminder for me. I can just talk to you about this, Lord. I, I tend to carry such a load at times, Lord. And I thank you for the men that you're putting in my life, elders that you are adding to the church who, who come and admonish me at times and, and help take off that weight and help disperse that load, Lord. I pray that not only myself, but all these that are here tonight and hear this, Lord, would say, oh, Lord, I'm doing the same thing. I'm not going to endure. I may do a million things, but none of them well for your glory. So, Lord, help us slow down, listen to the Bible, listen to God's word, listen to counsel from godly people so that we can walk in a way that's pleasing to you, that we can run this race, and when it's done, we can say we finished the race, we ran the race well, we fought well, and there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me, Lord, because Christ died for me. So Lord, help us in this. Moms, wives, husbands, dads, grandparents, children, young, young people, young working professionals in here. Lord, all of this applies to us. May we let this get to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.